We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Corin. This week, we have a great In Conversation for you guys. We have Yanis Varoufakis in conversation with Brian Eno on money, power and a call for radical change. Daniel, tell us about the event that this conversation happened at. So as you say, Farah, this week we had Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister, who I'm sure you'll all probably remember was involved in a big dispute with the European Union over the Greek debt crisis. And he was in conversation with the legendary music producer Brian Eno. I know it sounds like a strange pairing, but the two of them are old friends and big fans of each other. And they're both ideological bedfellows as well both being prominent voices on the left of politics. So as you say, the conversation was on money, power and a call for radical change. And it was an opportunity for two old friends on the radical left to discuss their respective visions for the future of politics. And steering the conversation along, we had Ritala Shah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just before we go to it, I wanted to also let you know about the other podcast series that Intelligence Squared has called How I Found My Voice. It's presented by the BBC journalist Samira Ahmed. And it's all about how prominent public figures came to find their voice from growing up, their childhood experiences to the defining moments in their career. In season two, which has just launched and you can listen to now, we have guests from Michael Palin to Richard Branson, Naomi Klein, the whistleblower Chris Wiley, the British MP Jess Phillips and more. Check it out. Just search for How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much to Hannah. Now, I'm sat between a politician who's often described as a rock star and a rock star who's an artist, an activist and a rock star. So uh, it has to be said, because I don't think I'll ever get the chance again. Hello, London. Uh, I'm undoubtedly playing the role of Gooseberry tonight because Brian Eno and Yanis Varoufakis are long-standing friends. Their shared interest in politics and ideas, both practical and philosophical, is more, I think, than just bar-side banter. They're both also involved in a political project. Yanis is co-founder of DM25, the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, and Brian's a leading member of it. And I think some of the movement's ideas may, may actually come up and get an airing tonight. I want you to pretend that the two of you are kind of having a, a bit of a, you know, you're hanging out, you're having a bit of a bar-side chat. We're not really here. Imagine that we're kind of at the back of the bar washing the glasses, right? We, we're not here. Um, and we will all get to join in a bit later because you'll get to ask questions and so will I. So what happens when Brian and Yanis, you know, sort of shoot the breeze, down a glass of something or two? What do you talk about? What are the biggest problems facing us right now? And we can talk a bit about solutions. And let's start by talking about how we fit in. Brian, as, as individuals, as a society, what, what are we facing as problems and, and what are the issues about individuality versus society? Well, I should first of all say that we mostly meet in front of a large audience. <laughs> <laughs> Ruin that then. <laughs> it's true, we often do meet in this kind of situation because he lives in Greece and I live here. Um, somebody has to pay the airfare, you know. 
that, um, well, I, I suppose the thing that has been obsessing me for quite a few years is where does creativity come from? Where does intelligence come from? And I'm more and more convinced it comes out of communities rather than, as we tend to think, out of individuals. It comes out of a whole sort of quagmire, a whole ecology of thinking and doing. Um, some of it looks like intellectual work, some of it doesn't, but it's what produces new ideas. So, so I, I often say now that um, <clears throat> new ideas are usually articulated by one person, but they're nearly always generated by a lot of people. And we tend to reward that one person at the expense of the, of the other people. I've been a beneficiary of that reward system, but I'm more and more suspicious of it. And do you think that the individual, the interaction of the individual with groups of people is the crucial part there? I'm thinking about the band, uh, the way a rock band works, the world that you work in. What is that interaction? Well, it's very interesting. I, I often use the word chemistry, which is a word everybody uses, but, but I mean it in a very literal sense. If you take iron... 100% iron, you have iron, there's something that's brittle, heavy and so on. If you add 4% of carbon to it, you get something called steel. And that's a quite different material. And very often the chemistry of bands is like that. that there's one person who makes a lot of noise and seems to be the leader. And there's very often one other person who doesn't make very much noise, but actually is equally indispensable. And I find that's true in all sorts of social situations as well. One of, one of the things that came to interest me was those creative situations called salons, which very much were part of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Salons were nearly always large groups of people, many of whom don't remain in the history books, but actually were part of the ecology, including particularly the hostesses who usually were putting these salons on and bringing people together. Mrs. Dalloway. Yes, yeah. Yanis, come on. The individual and ideas and creativity and solutions. Listening to uh, Brian... By the way, when we are on our own, we usually have the same kind of conversation. So either we're very interesting or we're ex exceedingly boring. Uh, <laughs> Narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> we do. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, why do people make art? This is something that you know, we've, we've spent hours talking about. Uh, regarding the individual... Allow me to um, come to the subject from my own trauma of being an economist. Because anybody who has had the tough luck of having studied economics, even very little economics, you will recall that uh, the first page of the or, you know, introductory textbook defines uh, the rational person, homo economicus. Uh, it, it's always a he, because only a male could be so deprived <laughs> and depraved. Uh, so the, 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 the individual is defined in economics as a bundle of preferences mm -hmm. seeking uh, satisfaction, uh, given constraints. And you're rational to the extent that you maximize your preference satisfaction given the amount of money you have, what other people who appear in the scene of economic theory as an obstacle. So community, instead of being empowering, is, you know, is what Jean-Paul Sartre used to say, other people are hell. Uh, but he meant it in an existentialist way. The economists actually mean it literally. Um, <laughs> now, this is, of course, you know, effectively, what you have is um, a Robinson Crusoe approach to the economy. If you look at, look at the Bank of England's econometric models, that the Bank of England uses in order to predict inflation, unemployment, Brexit, as if they can ever predict what will happen with Brexit, uh, given that there is a sample of zero <laughs> to work with. But anyway, so all these models are predicated upon the assumption that the economy is founded on Robinson Crusoe and his clones. They have no relationship except that through the market mechanism, so buying and selling. Uh, no one influences anyone. Uh, there's no money and there's no debt. Because you cannot have money without a community. 
It's like language. Remember what Wittgenstein used to say. There can be no such thing as a private language. Language is something we create together. You know, if you are a single person on the planet and you've grown up on your own, there's no way you can have a language uh, unless somebody taught it to you. So this rather sad depiction of the individual, which, by the way, is a savage, uh, is at the heart of the way in which mainstream economics thinks about the world. And one may ask the question, so why is this the case? Are they uh, not philosophically um, sophisticated enough? No, the answer is that there's a lot of money in it. Because the whole point about mainstream economics is to justify capitalism. Mm -hmm. And capitalism justifies itself on the basis of the fiction that wealth is something that is produced individually. And then the state comes and taxes it when it's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Wealth is produced socially, collectively, and then it's privatized. So um, this juxtaposition, juxtaposition between the individual and the collective, this is a, the dominant ideology which supports profit-making and a particular kind of class structure. Um, it's, it's the sermons, it's the, the religion, it's the theory. It's, it plays exactly the same role that in the Middle Ages the bishop played in legitimizing the power of the emperor, of the lord, of the baron, of the king. Um, and what we need to do, in the, we need to dissolve it. And Brian, Brian gave me a fantastic example, not example, idea of how this is dissolved. Uh, think about the, the economist's model of competition, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's a bit like a kind of Olympic sport where you know, my victory is your loss. But a far more interesting model of what happens in the world is the band, where you know you've got highly individualistic people usually mm -hmm. on the on the stage. Uh, but what's going on is while at the same time each one of them trying to prove to the audience and to each other and to themselves that they're the best of the lot, uh, unless there is the chemistry, unless there is the synergy, each one of them just creates noise. So carrying on from that, I would say that um, the, the other limitation of conventional economics or classical economics is not only that it's focused on the individual rather than the community, but it also has this notion of externalities, so that things that can't be monetized, things that can't be expressed in terms of money, are not considered part of the picture. You don't even think about them. So that, me that leaves out two very important, at least two very important, Worlds. One is the environment. If it isn't priceable, you don't count it. It's a resource for you to use. Um, and the other is um, care, caring. All the things that traditionally women did and still do, um, which aren't paid for. So you know the classical story that if, um, if I have a housekeeper and I marry her, I've actually reduced the GDP by doing that. <laughs> because there's no longer a transaction of money between me and her. So that seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But that is still the basis of economics. We're still calculating GDP on the basis only of exchange of money. Is that a flaw of economics, or is that a flaw of politics? Any attempt to distinguish between economics and politics, which are economists, you know, invest immense energy in making that distinction. Any such attempt leads to really very stupid economics and toxic politics. Look, think about it, you know. Um, buying a tub of yogurt is a politi political act in the sense, in a sense that you are channeling resources mm -hmm. to particular individuals, to particular companies, to, uh, to a particular... Um, food stuff, that is a political choice in a way. In a way it, it is something that shapes society to a tiny little extent. Mm. Uh, even Margaret Thatcher acknowledged that. Remember when she was um, um, towards the end of her career as Prime Minister, her tenure as Prime Minister, I mean, she had that moment of clarity when she said something that was correct and not particularly misanthropic. Um, 
<laughs> in opposing. Hmm? Only happened once, I think. <laughs> it happened a few times by accident. Um, but you know, she was she was extremely smart. Mm. So smart people, if they keep talking, they will say some, something profound at some point. <laughs> um, but she, she made the point in opposing the eurozone and the European Central Bank that was in the making at the time. You remember it, it, one think. of the last speeches in Parliament? Uh, I think it was Prime Minister's question time. She said, who controls monetary policy and interest rates controls the politics of Europe? There you are. Any attempt to distinguish politics from economics is bunk. In which case, if you're talking about the project that is Europe and the, the politics and economics that underpins it, you're very critical of the way in which Europe functions right now. And we've been having our own rather uh, vigorous debate. Uh, is it the politics and economics? Is it the individuals? Is it the, the way in which it was set up? Where do you even begin on that? Well, look, I think most of you to be here know that we supported Remain, a radical Remain. Okay? We said yeah, the, European, the European Union sucks, it's really anti-democratic, but you should stay in and we should fix it together. And there is no incoherence involved in this. It's like saying, I hate the Prime Minister of this country, because I love this country. There's nothing in contradiction here, right? So, having said that, this is for full disclosure purposes. Um, <laughs> look, my view about the European Union is that it was, it had a very bad start. In 1950, behind all the lofty ideals, which were great, you know, wanting to end all war, um, all wars in the, in, in, on the continent of Europe and bring people together, that was all great. But if you look at the construction, it was a cartel of big business. The first name for the European Union was the European Community for Coal and Steel, like, you know, OPEC. And the whole point was to limit competition, you know, to maximize the, the profits of these big businesses. And then they copped the, you know, the, uh, the French farmers, they gave them a cut of the industrialists' uh, profits. When you create um, a kind of state apparatus uh, in the image of a cartel, yeah, this is, by definition, the uh, opposite of democracy. People might talk about cooperation, efficiency, words like that, perhaps? Well, they can talk about, uh, you know, transhumanism, for all I'm, uh, I, I care. The fact is <laughs> that the bureaucracy in Brussels was put there in order to serve the interests of big business and to keep the riffraff, the demos, out of any democratic process and effectively to take decision-making capacities from democratically elected governments and throw them into this hole of this cartel. Okay, that doesn't sound like a great uh, eulogy for the EU. It doesn't sound like you're a fan. Given, so Tony Benn was right to oppose and, you know, Britain's entry into the European common market, in my view. Mm -hmm. But it's one thing to say we should not have gotten into this cartel. It's quite another thing to say 43 years later that we should get out. Because during those 43 years, you have all sorts of social norms that have emerged. Uh, you have Erasmus, you have um, uh, whole layers of legislation, you have industry standards, you have environmental protection standards, you have worker protection standards. It's not just you know, a cartel, it is something much bigger than that. And it is impossible to disentangle yourself from this without creating toxic politics in your country and also precipitating uh, a dynamic within the European Union which will turn the European Union into a far more aggressive continent which is not bad for you given the, that whatever you do you cannot sail away from this part of the world and sail towards the United States or China despite what Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson may want. So my view of Europe is this is how it started. The crisis we see in the Euro, the crisis of legitimacy of the European Union is a natural repercussion of the, its original architecture as a cartel. What we must now do is transform it and democratize it. This is why DiEM25 began in 2016 with a slogan, the EU will be democratized or it will disintegrate. And what we are trying to do is to prevent its disintegration because it's going to have huge political, economic, social, aesthetic, cultural uh, costs upon all of us by democratizing it, by putting the demos into what is supposed to be European democracy. Brian, I wonder if, if 
for you when you think about climate change, and I'm going to turn a little bit of a corner because I'm anxious to make sure we have enough time for questions. When you think about climate change then, um, is the EU the vehicle within which you can tackle that? This big undemocratic cartel, as, as Yanis describes it. Well, it's certainly a much better vehicle than Britain on its own, I think, for sure. It already has started making steps in that direction. And in fact, we have already been sharing in those and probably we will now be in the process of trying to revoke them if we do Brexit. But the, the more important issue for me is thinking where does, where does power actually lie? And I think what has happened in the last few years, because of the, sh the joint shock of Trump and Brexit, is that people have started becoming empowering themselves again. They've started becoming empowered. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly aware of this in America because I have quite a lot of American friends who are intellectuals who for years and years would have absolutely nothing to do with politics. They were sort of libertarians who thought politics is a sort of old business. Technology actually mm. is moving much faster than politics and technology actually um, uh, predicates our politics. So suddenly they're thinking, oh, pulling out of politics wasn't such a smart move. It just left the ground to people like Trump. So, same thing over here, I think. Suddenly we're all engaged in a way, again. And in fact, one of the reasons I do things like this is because I want to say to people, actually anybody could be engaged. You don't have to have come from a political background. What you have to want to do is to take hold of what power you can get hold of and do something with it. And I think the way that... Um, power structures change is, is actually quite subtle. I think that the existing power structure becomes more and more fossilized. It becomes less and less able to respond to the people it's supposed to be governing. You can see this very clearly, I think, happening both here and in America. So what happens then is those, those people have to make ad hoc arrangements themselves and get things done themselves. Bit by bit, they become the new they become the government. That carapace, that fossilized carapace still exists and we still have to pay for them, just like we still pay for the monarchy and we still pay for the church and we still pay for all these layers of carapace that we have above us. But the real work of social change is being made by people, often working voluntarily, actually. People who belong to NGOs, who are in neighborhood groups to change things, to improve the local school or in big organisations like Greenpeace and so on. But it's, it's those people who are propelling change now, much more than politics, who are, politicians who are generally sort of obstructing it by their fossilizedness. First, on the Green New Deal uh, and the European Union. Mm. I have no trust in the European Union's tendency to <clears throat> implement a Green New Deal the way its bureaucracy and politics is structured. Uh, it will not happen. They will make all the right noises because the EU is fantastic at lab labels, packaging, um, euphemisms, uh, <laughs> and all that hides inactivity, inaction. I look at Germany, for instance. For in, you know, it's amazing that it's a country, a country that is swimming in surpluses. It's got a budget surplus, a trade surplus, a surplus of corporate savings, of household savings, and they're not investing in anything. Serious. I mean, their infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, they're still using lignite. I mean, it's pathetic, right? Uh, but the European Union has the instruments that could be pressed into the service of a genuine Green New Deal, and I'll give numbers now, 500 billion pounds every year at least. At least. This is the minimum we need in Europe. Five to eight hundred billion pounds every year. It sounds like a lot of money. It is not. Do you know how much money is um, swashing around in the city of London doing nothing? Being uninvested? It's about a trillion pounds. So only in London. Imagine in the whole of Europe. It's about four and a half trillion in Europe. Excess savings, liquidity, doing nothing other than bidding up house prices and not doing what... But the European Union has the institutions who have the European Investment Bank which sounds boring, and it is boring, and it is in Luxembourg, of all places. That's really right. boring. Uh, but is anybody here from Luxembourg? I'm sorry. But do you know, it's four times the size of the World Bank. 
it has the capacity to energize all this excess liquidity, especially if you have an alliance between the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, under a Labour government, allow me to you know, make a party political broadcast here. Um, go, Jeremy. Uh, but if you... <laughs> If you have an alliance between the Central Bank of Europe, of, of, of Britain, of Denmark, of Sweden, and the European Investment Bank, a new investment public investment bank that you need in this country, the equivalent in Germany, KfW, right? You could really affect and implement a meaningful, substantial Green New Deal. But to do this, to utilize those institutions, you need the demos to rise up. And it will not be a question of persuading politicians that they are wrong. It's a question of overthrowing them, replacing them. So, you know, the Extinction Rebellion people, the Fridays for Future people, they have to take over politics and not disintegrate the European Union, but use those wonderful instruments that are there, sitting, doing nothing, or very little, that is useful, and press them into, into service. And one last thing, allow me to say. Look, I have a message for you folks. Stop whinging. <laughs> Brexit has been a very good thing for you. Not getting out of the European Union, but it has reinvigorated democratic politics in this country. People talk politics again. Youngsters are interested in politics again. Now, that is a breath of fresh air. That is something to harness mm -hmm. its energy, not in order to get out of the European Union, but in order to... For instance, everybody now sees that there is a majestic disconnect between Parliament and the people, between the elites and the people. Okay? Fine. Do not surrender this to the Farages of the world. Make sure that this is, becomes a good reason to recon, reconsider the electoral system, the fraudulent first-past-the-post, which will never allow this country to be fully democratic. You need you know, assemblies like that to grow and to become citizens' assemblies to discuss again the constitution of the United Kingdom, that needs to be written down and needs to be reconsidered. You need an English parliament. You, need, you will decide what you need. But this is a fantastic moment in British history. And just to conclude, there are two ways of being nationalistic. One is to, be, to, to adopt you know, the exceptionalism mm -hmm. mantra that our country is exceptional, it is much better than other countries, and so on. But there is another way of being a nationalist, and this is one we must avoid. Inverted exceptionalism. Our country is the worst. Look, the political system has broken down. Brexit has proven nothing is working. We are the worst of the worst. No, that is another kind of nationalism. We are not that special. You're not worse than the Germans, the Greeks, the French. Our democracies are, are in trouble. That's why we need to get together at the European level, at the international level, to put the demos back into democracy. And you're doing a good job. This is a good start. Keep going. <laughs> okay, let's move on a little bit, because I don't want to spend all the time talking about the issues around Brexit. But... You also talked about the Green New Deal and the need for the demos to rise up and, and uh, push this idea forward. What about co-opting the bankers? Mark Carney's talked recently on several occasions about the importance of uh, green issues to business and that actually it should become fundamental to the ways in which businesses see themselves and their future and indeed giving the best to their shareholders or whatever their priority is. Is that a way forward? I have a very high regard for Mark. He didn't say that. He didn't talk about co-opting the bankers because no, Mark is too I'm, clever I'm saying to suggest that because he knows that they yeah. cannot be co-opted to a good cause. Right? <laughs> uh, what he said is, if you do not move towards sustainable investments, you're going to go bankrupt. There's, no, it's, they're, they're, but they will not. It's against their nature to do anything good. So allow me to be very specific. We're here in London. We're, very, we're not far away from the city of London. I'm going to say something which is very heretical, but it also happens, in my understanding, to be totally true. This country needs to shrink the city of London yep. by a factor of 90%. The argument that the city of London is good for this country is a complete and utter fallacy. It is a drag on the rest of the economy. 
it is pushing productivity down, it is making Britain into what it has now become in the last 20, 30 years after financialization went crazy. And it's turning uh, London into Notting Hill. It's turning London <laughs> as seen in the film. The movie, the same, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and so the argument that, that, we, that the city has to be competitive and it must accumulate capital, it's exactly the opposite of what is true. So you need fewer banks, fewer bankers. Uh, they are effectively a sinkhole that absorbs and extracts value from, from the rest of the economy. And the result is that you know, the majority of the people are not left behind. They are held behind by financial, financialization. It is preposterous that the asset books of uh, the City of London uh, contain loans that are five times your GDP. This is, this is something that you should look at as a threat to the cohesion and future of this country. The city is the problem. Then where is the answer? Where is the money for the Green New Deal, for instance? Well, one, one place is tax havens. You know, one of the really big problems we face is that so much of the money that moves around England doesn't ever get taxed, particularly the money of the very wealthy like that. The, another place is this ridiculous thing of high-frequency trading where money is being created in nanoseconds. Why, why isn't that? That would be a very simple thing to restrain, at least. Um, there are many ways, I think, that we could be looking at the flow of money and seeing how we could make it fairer and more rational. But we're not doing it at the moment. Well, uh, there are two points also to add to this about the Green New Deal and how to finance it. The first one is a technical one. Mm. Uh, you don't need a financial centre that has five times G its GDP of, money, of pieces of paper slo sloshing around, doing nothing productive. Uh, France, which is not in a great state of health either, uh, has a much, much, much smaller financial sector and average productivity is higher than 25% mm. higher than, than Britain and income per person is higher than Britain. So you, yeah, you don't need it. The, the financing of the Green New Deal will require uh, taxing wealth, ending tax havens and so on, but it, that will really not be at all enough. Even if you introduce a wealth tax like the one that Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are proposing in the United States, all you'll be able to raise is about 1% of GDP. It's good, it's good, but it's not enough. We need 5, 6, 7% to have the green transition, the creation of the good quality jobs that we need in this country, in Europe, and so on. The main way of energizing this excess liquidity is what I referred to before public investment banks that issue bonds that operate like sponges that soak up the liquidity from the real estate market, from uh, the uh, share buyback process, which is boosting share prices without any investment, without any quali good quality jobs, uh, and the central banks just announcing to the market so they will support the bonds issued by the public investment banks. That was the New Deal idea originally of Franklin Roosevelt. Yep. It's how he managed to prevent the perpetuation of the Great Depression in the United States, that, that basic public finance idea. But beyond that, we need to reconsider the model of capitalism that we have. Because you know, think about it. Every time you, you use an app to buy a train ticket in this country, right? You know that 75p goes to train line. Uh, train line belongs to KKR. You've never heard of KKR. KKR owns Boots, the chemists. Did you know that? Did you know that behind the, the majority of the corporations and big banks like JP Morgan in the United States, Bank of America, uh, US Bank, uh, Walmart, and so on, there are three companies that you probably have never heard of. Uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, State Street. Have you heard of them? They own 70% of capitalism, mm. right? And your little 75p every time you buy uh, a train line ticket, yeah, sort of slashes around through there. So you have a situation where the railway, railway system in, in Britain 
is siphoning anything between 170 and 200 million through the apps that you use to buy a train ticket. And that finds itself into the KKR tax havens of the Cayman Islands and so on and so forth. Now, that effectively is a, think of it as a system of extracting value from the real economy and siphoning it off to create this, you know, the, the super, super, super rich of 0.1%. As long as we keep doing this, there will be no Green New Deal because those people will always own the media, will always own Facebook or be able to, you know, to buy as many, as many you know, sponsored ads on Facebook to poison politics and to poison democracy. Unless we combine public financial tools that go back to have their roots in the, the New Deal of Roosevelt with a challenge to the property rights over apps, over Facebook, over railway systems, uh, we are not going to be able to save the planet and create jobs that stop people from feeling so angry that they vote for Johnson and Farage. What is interesting about KKI is they control 200 companies and have 4,500 companies registered in the Cayman Islands through which they control those 200 companies. Uh -huh. And did you know that there's, there's an address in Harley Street, number 29 Harley Street, which has 15,000 company headquarters at it? And if you call them, somebody will answer the phone and she'll say, yeah, I, uh, sorry, Dave, I can't connect you with them. It's, it's a completely fake address, but it's a, because England is now the, the money laundering capital of the world, it really is, actually. We, we are the real criminals in this. Um, that's what happens. You get 15,000... Know, this so is not collective guilt, because no, the majority of the British people are the victims of the City of London. Yeah. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I want to, just a couple of things before we open it up to everybody here who've been busy washing glasses, you, you haven't noticed they were there. Uh, one is this idea of the worker, of capital, linking back through, we talked about climate change. I wonder whether you think a lot of this could be made redundant, first by the changes that climate change may bring, and secondly by AI, People are talking about thousands of, ten, hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs, white-collar jobs, blue-collar jobs, because of AI, the driverless car, the law firm that can you know, look at contracts simply by putting them through a computer. 
the sort of the, the, the joining of those two events, how dangerous is that? Are we even thinking about how they might interact? Some people are. There's a very interesting new book by Stuart Russell just came out, which is about the more dystopian possibilities of, of AI. Um, I, I can't remember the, t- the name at the moment, I'm afraid. Um, but the, the interesting thing about AI is that really we should call it machine learning. Yes. AI is a different thing. We haven't actually got to much of that yet. It's machine learning, and machine learning is looking at lots and lots of data and finding patterns that aren't intuitive, that aren't obvious without a machine learning system, and then trying to create responses based on that. And it it would be very interesting if we said to a machine learning system, what should we do about climate change, Um, if we trusted it enough to actually take its results seriously. Because I, I think it would be revolutionary if we if we did accept that we were now in a position where our own intuition was not sufficiently evolved to deal with this very complex and big problem and that we needed that kind of help. I'd like to see the results of that. Um, what, what I think is happening now is that we're moving into a sort of non-intuitive phase of our history. The complexity that we're dealing with is so, so rich and... Uh, as, as any of you who know about chaos theory will understand, the number of outcomes, the number of possible outcomes is so large that we need help in dealing with this. We can get that help by crowdsourcing, by trusting each other's opinions and amassing them and looking at how well the data is being digested. But we could also do it, I think, somewhat with machine learning. So here is the thing from where I'm standing. Uh, Given the exponential growth of productivity of capital, of machines, machine learning, robots, and so on and so forth, capitalism is going to run out of path. Because, in a sense, with private property rights over the robots, concentrating on such a small percentage of the population, you're going to have a society that can produce all sorts of goodies, but there will be no demand for them because the masses of people will not be able to afford them. So what you're going to have is a situation where you are never going to get full automation. You're going to have a dual economy. You're going to have fully robotized plants. Already we have. Mm, If you go to to the Apple manufacturing plant near Austin, Texas, that produces all the, the MacBooks, there are hardly any workers, hardly any workers. And at the same time, you're going to have uh, areas where people work like machines uh, with, with very little mechanization because you know, human labor will be so dirt cheap, almost slavery, that there will be no economic reason to introduce robots. So we're going to have a, you know, th- this kind of awfulness. Um, the only solution I can see to this, in order to turn the robots into humanity's slaves, rather than allowing them to turn most humans into the slaves of the robots and of the owners of the robots, uh, is to have a situation where a percentage of the shares, we can start with 10%, of the shares of corporations with more than 500 employees uh, go to a sovereign wealth fund. I would like it to be a global one. Mm-hmm. And all the dividends accumulate in there. And that becomes a fund from which you disperse a small, initially, universal basic dividend, not income. To the extent that capital, machinery, you know, to think of, of the Google engine. Every time you search something in the Google engine, you're contributing to the capital of Google, but you're not taking any of the profits. The profits are privatized. Mm-hmm. So they are, the capital is socially produced, the profits go directly to the shareholders only of Google. So imagine if we said, look, folks, if you really want to be listed in the stock exchange and you have the license to operate and so on, 10% of your shares will have to go to a common kitty, to the commons. Mm -hmm. And then the dividends that accumulate there are divided. And as AI progresses and robotization progresses, we can go from 10% to 20% to 30% in the limit you have market communism. Mm-hmm. Because if that goes to 100%, 
all the corporations are owned by everyone, all the dividends accumulate to everyone, but you still have markets functioning. So we're not talking about going to, to Soviet-style failed communist experiments, but we're kind of talking about a completely different way of combining commons with entrepreneurship, with technology. And then, uh, if we are, as the demos, the owners of capital, then you can direct it towards the green transition uh, practices that will save the planet. Hmm. That's a, a huge thought. I'm going to put it out there. There were so many huge thoughts. And I, I know it may not have seemed like it, but I was desperately trying to keep my mouth shut. There were so many things I wanted to ask. But I'm going to let you do some of the asking now. So please ask brief questions so we can get as many in as possible. There are people wandering around with panels. Number one at the back there. Hello, good evening. Um, just would like you to comment on movements and radical change. I'd like to mention two very important ones, the BDS and extinction, and what is missing? I think you should answer this question, and BDS in particular. (laughs) Before we came on, I said there are two subjects that if they come up, we'll never get off them, Brexit and BDS. I'll let you speak briefly then on on answering this question, and then we can move on. Okay. First of all, I should say what BDS is for the benefit of those who don't know. It means boycott, divestments, and sanctions, and it particularly applies to the cultural boycott of... Israeli government-supported culture. Um, it's, the, it's the one thing that has completely unified the Palestinians, who, I mean, 99% of them support BDS and, and ask us foreign alt- artists to observe BDS. It's, for, as far as I'm concerned, a question of judgment. There are good arguments for saying that... Um, the existence of BDS hardens resistance to change in Israel. I think they are some quite good arguments. There are also good arguments, and I I err on this side, for saying that BDS is the only thing that the Israeli government has ever felt threatened by. And this seems to me to be fairly obvious, that they now have a special department in government to deal with it, and they work very hard to discredit it. I'm not going to talk any more about BDS because it is such a complicated subject and it can, we could be here all night. Um, what was the other one? Extinction, Extinction Rebellion, Rebellion is the other movie. Um, well, that's a great thing to see. I'm, I'm very happy Extinction Rebellion exists. Um, I, I want to see movements of that kind happening at every social level. I don't expect to see 60 or 70-year-old university professors going out with this, doing the same kind of movement, but I hope they do a movement. I hope they make a movement. Um, and I think, as Yanis said, that what we're seeing now in England for the first time since I was quite young is a society that is engaged in a commitment to change of some kind. Can I say a few words about BDS as well? Because this is important, especially amongst our comrades in Germany. I worry about BDS, even though I support it. And I worry because it's so easy for anti-Semitism to seep into any movement like that. And I would prefer to, you know, die in a ditch. Have you heard that expression? (laughs) (laughs) Than to be associated with anti-Semites or to be in a movement that is easily infiltrated by anti-Semites. But then, you know, we have to balance that fear with another fear the fear of forgetting the Palestinians and, you know, just leaving them to ethnic cleansing and this, uh, you know, crime against their human rights, which is happening under the express policy of apartheid by especially, you know, the recent Israeli government. Uh, So how do you balance the need to prevent anti-Semitism from seeping in with the need to fight against apartheid? When there was apartheid in South Africa, BDS was strong. You know, I, remember, I used to live in this country back then. We used to demonstrate against, against apartheid. And we used to call upon Thatcher to impose boycotts on Barclays Bank, on all the companies that were you know, functioning in South Africa and so on. I was not against the South African people, whether they were black or against... It was against apartheid. So, the, 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 you know, the one trillion... Pound question is how can we combine boycotting apartheid while being solidaristic 
to the Jews who feel threatened by anti-Semitism? That is the question. Mm-hmm. Not because fair that I know is fantastically the, controversial. And perhaps the the easiest defence against BDS is to say it's anti-Semitic, yeah. and that's the defence that the Israeli government always uses. So it's, it's always tried to make BDS look like an anti-Semitic movement. It's the same technique that's been used against Corbyn, of course. You know, that, that is one way of weakening somebody because that's such a, that's such a fractious area to okay. talk about. I am actually going to move away from this because it is I'm glad controversial you are. Thank and you. there is so much... Uh, we that, don't move away from controversy. Well, because I want to get some more questions in. We Otherwise, we can just spend the rest of the time talking about it. I'm going to go upstairs this time. So there's a woman in the red jumper there. If you want to come down to that microphone down there. Thank you. I suspect you guys both agree that we are going through a major transition as a, as a society and as a world, really. And, and technology has generally brought, seems to have been the cusp of these big transitions. How do we get better at reinventing ourselves? How do we get better at, um, at this process of constantly transitioning to be 2.0, 3.0, to become better as societies? Because I feel like every time we have to go through it, it's because there's a lot of pain, there's a war, there's um, angst that leads to it. And so how do we start to learn from this process of reinvention and get better and get processes in place that allow us to do it peacefully and equitably? We're in, a, in the midst of a transition. How can we use technology to reinvent ourselves and become better? Well, you have to remember that everything to do with the internet came out of a kind of stew of utopianism that brewed up on the West Coast in the 80s and 90s. And it really was a very utopian vision suddenly we'll all be able to talk to each other. What could be better? There's going to be world peace immediately. Um, I was part of this and even believed it for a few weeks you as did. well. <laughs> so sort of about 1989 to... <laughs> five minutes. You know, it seemed like, what could go wrong? Suddenly we can all communicate. All of those barriers that have been keeping us apart, geographical and cultural and so on, they're going to disappear. Um, we didn't see the other side of it at all, I think. I think people... Jaron Lanier was one of the first people to start seeing it in the 90s. He started saying, this doesn't look so good. And, of course, the person who saw it most was Evgeny Morozov, who wrote that great book called The Net Delusion. Um, And the second book was called To Save Everything, Click Here. Um, They're both brilliant books. But, nonetheless, California carried on with the myth, you know, imagine the future, it's yours, sort of thing. But I think what we could do in future is perhaps proceed a little bit more slowly and not proceed at the breakneck speed that was predicated entirely by the fact that um, there was a, a race going on between these companies to claim as much territory as they could. You know, it was a real sort of arms struggle going on. Um, there's a great um, graphic going around at the moment on the internet showing the last 20 years of the internet and the primacy of different companies, and you see them gulping each other. Um, the process was nothing whatsoever to do with social well-being. Nobody in that process was thinking about that. They were thinking about territory. We want the biggest possible audience. We want the maximum number of eyes. So it was to do with advertising, essentially, because that is, after all, what the internet is paid for Mm. by. Um, So can we perhaps in the future not have it dominated by advertising? You know, again, this has to be thought of as a commons, I think. And if it's a commons, it's it's beholden to a citizens' assembly of some kind. It It has to share our intentions and our needs as well. Okay. Yeah, this. Yeah. Um, well, first thing we must not do is indulge in self-help books and that culture yeah. of, you know, voluntarism where, we, you know, we are going to do a little bit of recycling and feel that we have done our thing. Uh, this is a collective enterprise. Yeah. We must get together and form movements and, you know, reinvent ourselves through democratic participation. Uh, Part of that is actually, as you say, not taking responsibility for something we are not responsible for. You know, there are processes that produced this situation and they weren't of our choice, actually. So to sort of take all the blame on yourself and say, I have to improve my life, that's, that's a bit of martyrdom that you don't need to do, really. Exactly, exactly. 
Uh, and because you, you had an American accent, didn't you? It, it gave me a couple of ideas. Well, we need to borrow ideas uh, from interesting social experiments and economic experiments. Allow me to say that uh, I'm a great believer in restructuring our socioeconomic mode of production along the lines of NFL, the National <laughs> Football League. Let me make the point here. Let me remind or tell those who don't know of it that the NFL is a very strange competition. So, you know, when it comes at the end of the season or the beginning, between seasons, to replenish their talent, their player stock, eh? the worst team gets the best available free player. In, similarly, in Major League Baseball, you have a salary cap and teams that pay more than a certain amount. Uh, they have to pay 40% tax to the teams that don't have enough money to pay salaries. Okay? That's a kind of socialism. Mm -hmm. Effectively, what you're doing is you're redistributing to the weakest. Why? Because competition is much more interesting when you don't have Google and Facebook mm -hmm. you know, and Walmart destroying everybody else. So, you know, how about reinventing society by combining wonderful socialistic ideas with the National Football League? Um, and, also, and finally, on this issue, again, because of your American accent, I'm going to, to give an American example. Don't call those who vote for racists, racist or deplorables. It is not a good idea. So, I'm not being Christ, you know, Christian here, but you've got to understand those who voted for Trump or for Brexit, for Farage, whatever, okay? You've got to try to get into their shoes, not in order to be converted to their way of thinking. But, you know, when you hear a blue-collar worker in Minnesota, wherever, refer to Latinos or Mexicans as rapists because they heard Trump say that. These are not merely bad people. They're people in despair. Because if you look at the st social statistics in the United States, also in the United, in the United Kingdom, you know, watch any Ken Loach movie if you don't need to read, to read statistics. Okay? Uh, what, what you find in the United States, you, you have blue-collar workers that have lost their job in a mass layoff. They are completely hopeless, and they have to go through the indignity Whereas these are the people, the very same people that used to call welfare queens, the black women who were on welfare, they have to go and register as disabled people to, because the only way of getting some benefits is to pretend to be disabled. At that point, the moment they become welfare recipients, the people that used to call welfare recipients welfare queens, suddenly it's not enough to call welfare queens the blacks and the Latinos. They have to call them scum, rapists. They have to, they, and you have to... You don't have to agree with them, you don't have to like them, but you have to understand them. And you have to explain to them the circumstances that led them to this, that this is not the Latinos and it's not the blacks, but it is capital. It is yeah, Wall Street. It is Obama's reappointment of Tim Geithner you know, to take America out of the post-crash period by effectively refloating the bankers who brought that disaster upon those very same people. All right, so I'm going to take... There think there's one up there, and there's... I'm going to take one at the back there, and that's, that's a lot. Yes, lady there. Do you want to do the one at the back first? Yes, because you're right near. Keep it brief, and I'm going to ask these guys to keep it brief too. You've given us a lot of information tonight. Thank you very much. And uh, I want to ponder about the democratisation of information flows and the role of WikiLeaks in democratising information flows about money and power... And I'd like to hear your opinion about the threats to Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, and his potential U.S. extradition in Trump's America. Thank you. That's going to be brief. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen up there. Just a, a very, very quick one. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the back catalogue of Roxy Music, but um, there's someone, I'm guessing both of you gentlemen here, 
are familiar with is Nicholas Shapson. Yes, and his the book, Finance Curse. Finance Curse, yes. Yeah. I'm just halfway through it at the moment. It's a great and, book. Yeah, but I was wondering, um, the vast majority of my friends in London are of the opinion that the City of London creates an awful lot of tax revenue and delivers it to the rest of the country. It's mm. an exporter to the rest of the country tax revenue. However, if one accepts the premises of the, of the book, all they're doing is destroying wealth and their profits of destroying that wealth, they're giving a few small crumbs back, which I think is probably the truth. But unfortunately, the vast majority of the people in the United Kingdom, perhaps in the West, think that the huge financial markets are forces for good and that they work in this uh, free market, which is a great thing. How are you going to disavow them of that? Uh... Okay, that view. I'd quit. We're going to have to do this really quickly, I'm sorry, because we are really over time now. So your view, thoughts on Julian Assange and the role of financial markets? Two big questions, I totally accept. Um, we, we both know Julian, and we both visited him when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy, um, s- several times each, I guess. And... It was certainly a form of torture, and he's now in an even worse form of torture. He's in solitary confinement. Yanis talked to him very recently. He's, he's quite ill. So whatever you think about Julian Assange and what he did, this is not what he deserves. He's, he's being tortured, essentially. When I was a young person, like I think most of us, upon reading 1984... Or was 1984? I was terrified because I could see that it was this was coming. Big, big Brother was coming. The technology would always improve, and who's going to have it? Big Brother, and we will be under surveillance. The first time I felt a glimmer of hope that this can be reversed was when I read about the work of Julian Assange even before he started WikiLeaks, and his great, brilliant idea was to use Big Brother's technology to turn it into a digital mirror and turn it towards Big Brother so the rest of us can see what Big Brother is doing. The reason why Julian is now in in, uh, Belmarsh prison, uh, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement, which is something that is not even done to the worst multiple murderers in this country. Every day, 23 hours a day, he's in solitary. He has one hour a day. It's because he exposed the crimes against humanity that uh, were performed in our name, in the name of the West, in Iraq, here, there, in Tunisia, and so on and so forth. That is the only reason. And I think that those progressives who have every reason to be critical of some of Julian's choices, as I was regarding seeing Nigel Farage, supporting Trump, in the vain hope, faint hope, that maybe he would be released from his predicament. They should apologize to their own conscience for spending the last seven, eight years saying that he is running away from a rape charge when it is absolutely abundantly clear that there was never such a charge and all that is going on is he is meant to effectively perish in a supermax prison in the United States of America for embarrassing the national security apparatus. I know there's lots of, lots of things in there to unpick and it's quite difficult to move on, but I am going to make you move on because we are over time. Just very briefly then, this question of the financial markets, it's clear that neither of you are particularly fans of the City of London. How do you convince people in the UK who believe actually that wealth that's created in the city flows to the citizens? I just would like to add something to what Yanis said. There's another organisation which is turning a mirror, using the same technology to turn a mirror back onto power, and that's um, an organisation based in London called Forensic Architecture. They're based at Goldsmiths, and if you don't know about them, really, really have a look at them. They're the most interesting group of people doing fascinating work using quite complex data analysis to 
tell the true story of some things that governments have been lying about for some time. So I just want to tell you about that in case you don't know about it. Um, as for the City of London, well, first of all, the notion that they're paying lots and lots of taxes is almost laughable because they are the biggest of all the tax cheats in the world. So, so they're not actually contributing even on that level very much. The, the other problem is that they suck out so much talent. It's like the Department of Defence in its relationships to scientists. Do you know the huge percentage of British scientists work for the Department of Defence? What are they doing? We don't really know, but that talent is actually, as I mentioned earlier, is commonly nurtured. It's the product of our our society and our education system and so on and so on. And Can I say this worse than the Department of Defence? Because the Department of Defence, they do some actual innovations, mm-hmm. which eventually, you know, like the internet came out of the American yes, Department of sure. Defence. But these people are pushing paper around. All they're doing is creating more complicated forms of debt. Mm-hmm. There is no social value whatsoever yeah. in what they're doing. Yeah. Zero. The only innovation that has come out of the financial sector was the ATM. (laughs) (laughs) And on that positive thought, I'm afraid I'm going to leave it there because we are over time and out of time. (laughs) Thank you.